Well, as um, most all you can tell, my, my family is here, and everybody except SR is here in our family. Even Eloise, she's in the nursery. And they're here because we had a, a family, we had not a family, we had a, a friend of the family have a wedding yesterday, a close family friend, and so it was a good time. And I uh, had an opportunity after uh, the wedding ceremony at the reception to speak with the pastor who led the ceremony. He's a young man going to seminary now online. And I talked to him about the difficulty of that. He talked to me about that. And he said, what helps is that I have another friend who were also going to the same seminary, going to Southern Seminary, in fact, uh, where I got my doctor of ministry from, uh, where Steffi is going to Boyce College, and which is attached to the seminary, and they're very synergistic in that. And he said, well, another guy, we're doing, and we're taking the same classes online so we can talk with each other about that. And I, I was encouraged with that. And over the course of our conversation, uh, one of the things he said really struck me. Um, just because he understands ministry. His dad was a pastor, and uh, he understands just how ministry goes. And he said, you know, ministry on a human level is really about two things. It's about people and the Word. He said people and the Word. That is, ministry is about taking God's Word and applying it in the lives of people. And he went on to say how much of a people person he is, right? He gets energized by those around him. And um, he said, on the other hand, his friend... Um, who goes to seminary with him, he's more of a word person. Uh, he can talk theology like anybody and everybody uh, late into the night. And, and so he, he rightly discerned his own weakness and the weakness of his friend. He says, I need more theology and my friend needs more people. And, uh, you know, what I observed from his comments during the wedding, he's doing just fine um, with the word. And from I know of uh, his friend, uh, I know him, he's a good people person as well. And so, but that's, that's the tendency, right, to be one or the other. And we see in our, our text um, th- this morning, we're going to see Paul really just balancing both these things, with people and with ministry. And because this is the, the real practicals of the Christian ministry, it's about these two things, right? Bringing the Word of God to people with enough, enough understanding of people and enough love for people that it has an effect upon them. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones well wrote in his book, Preachers and Preaching, he said this, he says, you cannot read the history of the church, even in a cursory manner, without seeing that preaching has always occupied a central and predominating position in the life of the church. That is the word ministry, the, the proclaimed word. And, uh, but he also warns as well to his fellow pastors, he's preaching to them. He says, to love to preach is one thing, to love those to whom you preach is quite another. He said the trouble with some of us is that we love preaching, but we're not always careful to make sure that we love the people to whom we are actually preaching. If you lack this element of compassion for the people, you will also lack the pathos, which is a very vital element in preaching. And there it is, right? The word is, is predominant and central. As the word goes forth, people are built up in ways that I don't even understand. I don't know. It's the Spirit of God takes his word and applies it to your hearts. But also there's the people aspect of ministry as well. Just that's what it's about. It's about all of us. It's about loving people and being there in their time of need and calling them and checking up on them and eating with them and serving with them. Both those things. Well, the title of my message this morning is People and the Word because that's what we see the Apostle Paul doing. We see him loving people and we see him bringing the Word to them. And so we're in Acts chapter 20. If you haven't opened your Bible yet, I encourage you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 20. Our, our text is the first 12 verses. I simply want to read them. I want for you to think about, okay, where's people and where is the Word? 
Paul writes this, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. And when he'd gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Segundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead, and we were waiting for us, and, and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room that were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep... He fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But when Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This passage breaks nicely in half. The first half... The first six verses, we see Paul traveling from place to place, ministering to people along the way. There you go, right? He's he's traveling and ministering a lot to people. In the second half, the last six verses, we see Paul in Troas teaching the disciples who are there. That is bringing the word to the people. And so these two are my points this morning. We have travel in verses 1 through 6, and we have teaching in verses 7 through 12. So let's, let's deal first here with travel. In these verses... Paul is leaving Ephesus and traveling to Greece, traveling back through Macedonia, staying in Philippi for a while, and traveling to to Troas. Uh, It's merely the the latest leg in Paul's missionary journey. That is his third missionary journey. And and, and I trust you know that he's been on his third missionary journey. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 23, we see that little verse there. After spending some time there in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of, of Galatia and Phrygia strengthening the disciples. And we saw him in this verse depart from that, that great city there, that great church in Antioch. And then he went up in through Galatia and he was visiting there. And then he arrived in Ephesus. And he arrived in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And chapter 19 has been all about the ministry in Ephesus. And uh, the first six verses or so, seven verses, are about the, the men that Paul encountered first there. These were men who didn't know really there was a Holy Spirit, and Paul prayed for them. The Holy Spirit came down upon them and saved them. They, they were saved into the baptism of John, if you will, and then they were saved then into Christ with the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Just a, a miraculous thing. And, and then he gets into Ephesus, and then for three months he preaches in the synagogue every Sabbath. Right, he's going there for three months, preaching in the synagogue until he wears out his welcome. And the Jews then rejected him, and it said most rejected him, but some were rejecting him, but some were believing as well. And so he took some believing Jews to the, um, the hall of Tyrannus, and he brought the word to the people for, for two years, is what it says in verse 10. And as he was doing this, the word of the Lord was, was mighty and prevailing there. And, and there in Ephesus, verse 11 says, he was doing extraordinary miracles 
in the days of Ephesus. I mean, these are miracles that even for Paul were extraordinary. They were taking his sweaty, dirty work clothes and, and was carrying them. they were carrying them away from Paul and to the sick, and the diseases and the sickness and the evil spirits were coming out of them. I mean, Paul wasn't even present, but his body oils were on the clothes. And it was enough to heal many. That's extraordinary miracles. And as Paul continued on, on in Ephesus, this, the word was, was just going forth. And, and, and he was there for two years. In fact, we'll find out in Acts chapter 20 next week. He was actually in Ephesus for three years, ministering to the, these people. And uh, just as Paul had worn out his welcome at the synagogue, so also in the hall of Tyrannus, with the impact that Paul was making in the town of Ephesus, he wore out his welcome in the city of Ephesus too, with scores of people coming to Christ, having implication upon the temple of Artemis, as people were believing the message of Paul that gods made with hands are, are not gods at all. And the, the gatekeepers of this big temple of Artemis were really concerned about that because people aren't going to buy their idols and their livelihood was at stake. And then they, they had this big mob that, that formed against Paul and uh, tried to just kick him out of the city, essentially, is what they were trying to do. We looked at that last week. And, and this week, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 20, right after, it says, after the uproar ceased. We don't know if that was right same day or whether it was a week later or, or when, when it was, that Paul is saying goodbye to his friends at Ephesus. These are friends he'd been with for three years and formed a close bond. It, and um, goodbyes like that are particularly difficult because you think about Paul and Ephesus. Most of these people here, if not all of them, had come to faith through Paul and through his ministry there in Ephesus. And, and, and when you've known people before they were living in their sin and, and you've preached the gospel to them, and they, they've embraced it and repented of their sin and turned from their sin and, and believed in Christ and experienced forgiveness of sins and experienced the blessing of what it means to be in Christ. When you've seen that whole process, and, and, and further right, when you've helped them through trials that come upon them for standing firm for Jesus and, and, and guide them through the family problems they may have or the problems they might have at work or in the society and and what it means to be an idol maker, no longer to be an idol maker, and right, to turn your back on the union and how difficult that might be, and you've helped them through that. Nothing will form a stronger bond than that when you're going through the trenches together. And here it is for, for three years. I, I think about college and college friends who've been around for four years together, just around each other closely. And then when they leave, how difficult that is. And I think with Paul, saying goodbye was particularly difficult. At this wedding we were at yesterday, um, we saw something very unique. I asked Chris at the, the ceremony, I said, well, have you seen this at weddings before? She's like, yeah, I've seen that at weddings before. I said, well, what about this? Because she's a wedding photographer. She sees all these things. I said, because to me, right, they had this donut rack. This donut rack was really unique. They had, and I said, wow, that's really neat. Have you seen it before? She says, yeah, I've seen that before. And uh, what I think was really neat was that uh, everyone was given a personalized mug it was a really great idea. So, you know, just this, the, the bride and the groom knew people. They bought mugs over this past couple months for people, and it was really special. And I said to Chris, that's really neat. Have you seen that before? She said, yeah, I've seen that before. <laughs> but there was one thing that she hadn't seen before, and that was when the, uh, the bride was, was brought up the aisle and, and the pastor was there, um, the pastor said the, the bride's father would like to say some things. And so he turned around and basically was given permission to talk about um, giving his daughter away and what that was and gave a very tender and a very touching uh, sort of speech about giving his daughter away and how difficult that was 
And that was very appropriate and very good. It was, it was funny. It was heart touching. And it was, it was, it was really good. But it, it was kind of, sort of like Paul. He was, the father of the bride was sort of saying goodbye to his daughter. I mean, forever a relationship changes when you get married. And so also he was kind of talking about how I'm giving my daughter away. There's a relationship that's changed. I'm saying goodbye to my daughter in some regards. And very much like, like, the, like Paul here, like just a, a difficult goodbye. And we're going to get a taste of that next week when we, we finish Acts chapter 20. When, when Paul's at Miletus, he calls these Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church, to Miletus. <clears throat> He's going to talk with them. He's going to tell them that I'm going to see your face no more. He says that, I think it's verse 25, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will see my face any longer. And when he got done with his speech, and verse 36 says they knelt down and he prayed with them all. He says there was weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him. Being most concerned, most of all, because the word he'd spoken, they have not seen his face again. This, this farewell and this goodbye and this earthly life really struck these Ephesian elders deeply. And I'm sure that many of the same emotions were coming out of, of those in Ephesus. As uh, they maybe had this premonition that Paul maybe would never see them again. And, and there were tears of sorrows and, and um, just tearing, being torn apart. And so like, what do you say? What do you say to someone you're going to say to, goodbye to? You've been together with for three years. It's hard. We don't know what he said, but verse 1 says this, that he encouraged them. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. And that's about all you can do when times are tough. You're saying goodbye to someone, all you can do is say encouraging things, hopeful things. The Lord will sustain you. He's your helper, as we read in Hebrews 13, 7 today. He will not forsake you. He'll be with you. He'll be your strength. Or from a human side, maybe Paul says, well, I'll continue to pray for you. you. You will always be on my heart. Or maybe just some final counsel and advice and admonition, right? Continue on. Press on. Keep trusting in Jesus. Be faithful to His Word. Things like that, right? But that, that's ministry, right? It, it's, it's people. It's encouraging them. It's encouraging them to press on. Well, after Paul, after this encouragement, Paul began, right, what I've talked about, his, his travel. And here we read that he departed for Macedonia, right there in, in verse 1. Uh, now, this is merely the first part of his planned travel route. Remember back in 19, verse 21, we looked at that last week. It says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And that's a simple plan. Macedonia... Achaia, Jerusalem, and Rome. So here he's in Ephesus. He wants to go to Macedonia, and then he wants to go down to Achaia, which is also Greece, and then he wants to go to Jerusalem, and then he wants to go to Rome. And that, by the way, we're going to see that in the book of Acts. Um, so Paul heads out to Macedonia, and he does so by way of, of Troas first. We know this because you start combining some things together in, in the Bible, and you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, he writes to the, those in Corinth about this time in his trip. He said this, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though there was a door open to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of him and went on to Macedonia. 
and apparently somehow in, in Paul's ministry, right, he was planning to see Troas, to see Titus in Troas. Now he didn't have fine friends back then, right? He couldn't say, "Okay, where are you, Troas?" Right? In fact, even on this way to the wedding yesterday, um, we didn't have the address of where we're supposed to go, so we just said, "Like, like, send me to Hannah." Right, take me to Hannah. And so we just saw and find my friends there you were. We just, we just followed the way to Hannah is how we got there. But Paul couldn't do that back in those days with Titus. And, and somehow he, he expected to rendezvous there. And without Titus there, he had, uh, the spirit didn't have any rest. He couldn't make a phone call, couldn't figure out where he was. He, he would have loved to continue the ministry in Troas. In fact, an open door for the gospel was him, with him, for him there in Troas. But Titus wasn't there. And so he went on. I mean, that just kind of demonstrates a little bit his, his love for Titus, his love for people. And so off he went then into Macedonia. And uh, again, if you read Second Corinthians, you find that, that Paul met up with, with Titus in Macedonia. Um, and, and his meetup there in Macedonia was super encouraging for Paul because Paul, for some reason, was going through some difficult times. We don't know about those, but listen to what he says to the church in Corinth about meeting up with Titus and how that was. It says 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for us, so that I rejoiced all the more. So in other words, right, they, they were then, Titus was in Corinth, and he met up with them, found them in Macedonia, and he heard about from Corinth what was happening. He was super encouraged when he, we met him there. But these sorts of verses really just show Paul's heart for people. I mean, during his, his, his travels, right, he always had people around him. He always were ministering to people on his mind. And remember, just these, this wasn't a vacation trip for the Apostle Paul. The Mediterranean is a nice place to vacation. It wasn't vacation for Paul, even as he described in, in 2 Corinthians 7 about the, the trials and the, the difficulties and the fightings without and the fears within that he was experiencing. But his heart was always to serve people and to help them. I mean, look at verse 2. It says, when he'd gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement he came to Greece. So Greece is another name for Achaia. And so he went from Macedonia and he's going down to Achaia and uh, he's, he's just giving them much encouragement along the way. Uh, you know, a little bit like when he left Ephesus, he gave the people encouragement there and he's just coming down here. He's just giving, he's just spewing out encouragement because he's ministering to people. Now, we don't know how Paul actually got to Greece. We don't know how he got to Achaia um, and we don't know how long it took. But all the way down, he was ministering and encouraging to people. But it's interesting, right? When you put other portions of Scripture together, you, you discover that actually this, this travel took quite a bit of time. One commentator said this, However we visualize the movements of Paul and his colleagues during this time, we are doubtless not far wrong in concluding that this ministry in Macedonia lasted for a year or more. And Paul just glosses it over. And so you kind of read that and you just say, Oh, well, he just gone to Macedonia. Um, but when you pull other scriptures together, you realize what Paul was doing on this way down. He was stopping at churches, and he was stopping at places, and maybe even he went to um, Illyricum, which is on the other side of Macedonia, and, and maybe he was traveling kind of all around there, but he was going to different places, and he was raising funds for the poor people who were in Jerusalem. They're facing poverty in Jerusalem, and he's going like a traveling missionary, raising, raising funds, not for himself to go as a missionary, but, but really to help those in, in Jerusalem. 
In fact, in Romans chapter 15, Paul describes the journey through Macedonia and Achaia with these words. He says, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles had come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in their material blessings. And and, and so what Paul's doing, mostly going to the, the Greek places. He's going to non-Jews to raise money. And they, the Jewish people have been a blessing to you Greek people. And so you Greek people might be a blessing to them and give to them. It surely took, a time, took a lot of time. You go to churches in different regions. And, and then you set up meetings. And you kind of wait for the, for the weekly gathering to be together. And there you're there with pastors. And then when you're there with the churches in these regions, you're telling them about the situations, how dire it is in Jerusalem, and, and you're encouraging this collection to be taken up. And oftentimes, you even sent people ahead. Well, you go there, and you encourage this collection to be taken up, so when I get there, it'll be right smooth and easy. And, and these churches, right, as he was, he was giving encouragement like any missionary would. Think about a missionary who's home on furlough. He's going to church, to church, to church, to church, telling stories about God's working, say, in Ephesus and other places. He could have told a lot of stories about Ephesus. They were even taking my clothes out, and people were being healed by that. Right? Or that, that we took down the whole temple of Artemis. They, they kicked us out because they were scared of these gods who were no gods at all. Or, or telling stories about how people came to Christ. Right? People were walking in their sin and they heard of Jesus and they came to Christ. He would have dozens and dozens of these stories. Or, or telling of the generosity of, of other churches. As he brags about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 about the generosity of the churches in Macedonia. Who they were, they're poor, but they gave and they loved to give to the saints in Jerusalem. And then on top of that, just even proclaiming the gospel to the people in Achaia and Macedonia. Just preaching Christ. And so however long it took, whether it was a year, whether it was six months or whatever, I think there's more time there probably than, than it seems. Finally, we get to Greece, as the end of verse 2 says. And, he, and when he was in Greece, which is another name for Achaia right there, he probably spent most of his time in Corinth. Uh, it's probably the church that he knew really well. In fact, Acts 18 tells a story. I planted the church, and they spent 18 months in Corinth. And, and, and it tells us there in verse 3 that then he spent three months there in Greece, probably mostly at the church in Corinth. And again, when you tie scriptures together, do you realize he wrote something when he was in Corinth? Do you know what he wrote when he was in Corinth? Anyone have a guess? Let me tell you, he wrote the book of Romans during those three months when he was in Corinth. He wrote the book of Romans. So I just encourage you, if you're writing your Bible, I encourage you to do that. Write a little Romans right next to Acts 20, verse 3. Like, this is where it was written. So it tells us, really, what Paul was thinking about when he was in Corinth. He was thinking about the grand themes of Romans. Right, we talked through Romans a, a few years ago, right? Do you remember the grand themes? Right? Romans begins with sin. Of how all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And none of us is righteous, not even one. None of us seek for God. As a result, God's wrath is upon us and is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But just as God's wrath has been revealed, so also God's grace has been revealed in the gospel of Christ. As, as Jesus came to be a propitiation for us. And, and, and God loved us while we were yet sinners is when Christ came and He died for us because our, our sin needed salvation and Christ came in chapters 4 and 5 of Romans to give us salvation by faith alone. 
just simply believing like Abraham. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He trusted the Lord. The Lord looked down upon him as a, as a righteous person. It's a gospel right there. And blessed is everyone right, whose sins are forgiven, whose transgression is forgiven. As Paul quotes there in Romans 4 from, uh, from Psalm 32. And that we're saved by, by faith alone and, and not our works, right? God changes us and, and changes us to do works, right? To, he, he considers ourselves to be dead to sin we ought to. And in chapter 6 and 7, tell us about the sanctification process. So we're, we're sinners and, and then salvation comes, chapters 4 and 5. And 6 and 7 then talk about the sanctification process, which is slow and painful and hard. But we can know chapter 8, the great chapter 8, that we are secure in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are are secure because God's planning our lives, sovereignly working in our lives. Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that we might be conformed the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he called. And these he also called, he also justified. And these he justified, he also glorified. And, and just this sense of the, the, the magnitude of the sovereignty of God. And, and it's not us, right? But God gives mercy upon whom he will, and he hardens whom he wills. But upon us who believe, right, our eyes have been opened. As God says, I will have mercy on those I have mercy, and I'll have compassion upon whom I have compassion. And God's mercy then drives us into service, right? So we've seen our sin. Chapters 1 through and 3, and, and we see the salvation that comes, chapters 3, 4, and 5. And then we see his sanctification, chapters 6 and 7. And we see his, his security, our security in him in chapter 8. And then his sovereignty is talked about in 9 through 11. And then 12 and following talks about Christian service. It all comes from the mercy of God. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. These are the sorts of things that was on his mind when he was in Corinth as he wrote that. And surely as he was with the people of Corinth, he was telling them about the things that he was learning from the Lord as he was being inspired, uh, which is coming up with Scripture. But after three months, right, his time in Greece came to an end. It was time for him to take his next step, right? Macedonia, Achaia. And what comes next? Macedonia, Achaia, Jerusalem, and then Rome. So he's all set to uh, go to Jerusalem, and uh, that's where he's wanting to go. And I do believe that he was trying to get there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread when the, when the Jews in, in uh, Jerusalem would remember Moses and, and how Moses brought the people of Israel out of slavery. And there were often pilgrim ships that would take this trip from Greece that they would travel to Jerusalem, you know, kind of like our bus tours today. It would be kind of like a, a, a tour ship because God commanded in Exodus 23 to come back three times into the land to celebrate the, the three feasts, the Feast of Ingathering and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and uh, uh, the Feast of the Harvest as well. So just these, these three feasts that they had to celebrate when they were there, these, these pilgrimages filled with a lot of Jews would be going to Jerusalem. But Paul heard that this plot was against him. If you look at verse 3, he said, There he spent three months in Corinth and Greece when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, uh, up north where Antioch is, and then they go down to Jerusalem, he decided to return through Macedonia. Somehow Paul concluded it was safer for him to travel by land than by voyage to sea. And you think about it, right? You get on this pilgrim ship surrounded by a bunch of Jews and carrying a lot of cash, 
for relief from the Jewish people. For, first of all, the, the Jews at this time were, were not so kind to the Christians. They didn't like that, even if you're going to help the Christians. And well, let's help the Jewish people there in Jerusalem. And easily there can be a, a mutiny on the bounty, right? There can be a mutiny on the boat, and you're basically at the hand of the majority. And a plot against Paul, the Christian, on this Jewish boat could easily have turned off while he was at sea. And there's some people planning this. And so he didn't go two by sea. He went one, one by land is really what he did. And so Paul went up back through Macedonia by land. And he figured it was safer that way because at least there'd be people to appeal to. They're not alone where, um, where just whatever tyranny rages. And, and then coming back in verse 4, verse 4, we see all these people that accompanied him back on through Macedonia on his way back to Jerusalem. It says in verse 4, we got Sopater the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus. He accompanied him. And this is uh, Berea. You remember that? They were more noble-minded than those at Thessalonica because they examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Here's Sopater coming back. And uh, of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Segundus. So these people were from the, the church of Thessalonica. And Thessalonica is there in Macedonia a bit. Um, and then Gaius of Derby, that's Galatia. And Timothy and, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. And all these were, were like Gentiles from, from all around coming and traveling with Paul. And I, I sense these people coming from various churches as a form of accountability to bring this money back to Jerusalem. And I sense also their safety with all this funds that they're going back to, that they, uh, they, they went there, they were, they were going with that, that purpose. Anyway, because the land route is slower than the sea route, they arrive in Philippi during the Passover feast. That's the day of, of unleavened bread. And we see that there in verse 6. Um, we sailed away after the, the feast of unleavened bread. And so that's why I think he was probably trying to get to Jerusalem for the feast of unleavened bread, which is, is the Passover. If they had taken the ship, they'd have probably got there. But instead, they just got to Philippi up in Macedonia when they happened. And Paul, being the only Jew in his traveling group, felt the need to stay, felt the need to stay and celebrate. This is like a high holy day for the Jews. Like every bit, way more than our Thanksgiving or our Christmas that we would celebrate there. But he, he was there in Philippi. He said, I just can't leave during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I've celebrated this for my youth. I'm a Jew. This is what I need to celebrate. But you Gentiles, right, you don't have that constraint upon yourself. You all go ahead to Troas. And after the feast, I will meet up with you there. And we hear of this travel then in verse 6. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. And, and I doubt that those in Philippi much minded that Paul had another visit um, to them, uh, especially he's able to be with them to celebrate the Passover with them, I'm sure they would have embraced that and loved that with Paul. I mean, the church in Philippi, I mean, of any of the churches, of any church he wrote to, Philippi probably is the, is the one that gave him most joy, the one that responded rightly to him. It was a great church. I'm sure he was loving to spending his time there. But it would be a great time just reflecting upon God's redemption of Israel, which then is brought to fulfillment in his redemption of Christ. Whew. Didn't think I'd get that much out of six verses, huh? But those verses are rich when you can understand and embrace all the rest of the Scriptures. But what they really speak about, though, is just Paul's concern for people. Like, that's what it was about. It's about people in Jerusalem. It's about people in the church and encouraging them. It's going from place to place. When they had an opportunity for the, for the feast, he was there with them in Philippi. It's really his heart for people. 
Though there are lots of moving parts and lots of change and plans, Paul's heart for people during that time of travel really, um, really came to the forefront. And this is ministry. Ministry is about people. It's about loving people and caring for people. And it's what Paul did. It's what we're called to do. We're called to respond to right, preachers who come in, perhaps. So we're called to respond, each of us, right? Serving and getting into the lives of other people. And serving and helping where there's need. And traveling, perhaps. Going to people's houses, going to their homes. Traveling and encouraging one another along the way. Well, my second point here, verses 7 through 12. Um, it's my second point, teaching. Because that's what we're going to see Paul doing. He's teaching. And he's teaching a lot. That's why my message today, I'm kind of going long today, intentionally. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul still talked longer And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But when Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Now this is one of the most unique stories in the book of Acts. Um, Kids ought to love this story because... um, this speaks about this young man. We don't know how old he was. Um, probably a, a teenager is the best guess that we have. Trying to stay awake during Paul's long sermon. Now, kids, I'm not sure if you ever struggle with that as well. Long sermons, Pastor Steve. Just be thankful that we don't have a third story at our church building, right? There's, that you fall out of that window, Jonathan, and you're, you're, just, you're just good, right? But it's a, it's a kind of, we, we all can relate to this, Right? Young man falls out the window, dies, raised from the dead. Paul continues the ministry, preaches on further. And maybe Luke decided to include it because it was so unique. Like it's a unique story in all the Bible. No else we hear of, of someone dying like this, falling out of a window, sleeping, if you will, during, during a sermon. Maybe, though, it has to do with the fact that Luke was actually there to see it. I'm not sure if you noticed the change in tenses that took place in verse 5. Look, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Who's us? Who wrote this book? Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke wrote this book. And so he was at Troas. He was waiting for the Apostle Paul. He was celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that, then he came to them and he was with them at Troas. So, so Luke like saw this take place. And, and this is another one of those we sections of the book of Acts. Where, Paul, where Luke stops talking about Paul and what he did and starts talking about Paul and what we experienced. He brings the we in, and, and then Luke, Luke and Paul, or, or we were there. And Luke's going to continue in the we section until he gets up to Jerusalem in Acts 21 and verse 17. It's kind of, once we get to Jerusalem, then Paul and, and uh, uh, Luke go their own ways, and then he's going to be with them again as he goes back to Rome, 27 and 28. Um, but here, Luke is there in Troas when Paul came, and Luke experienced his event firsthand, and he was there in the upper room where they're breaking bread together. And Luke fall, saw Eutychus fall out of that window. Maybe he sensed the danger as physicians are often careful, like they understand the dangers of where things are going. And maybe he saw that. He, Luke saw him dead and Luke saw him rise 
from the dead. And he included the story for us. Now, what's significant here also with Troas, you think about it, same spot where Paul had come earlier in his journey. You remember when he left Ephesus initially, he went up to Troas. Titus wasn't there. Even though he had a door for the gospel, he went on, passed over to Macedonia where he finally met up with Titus. But now he's coming back and the door is still open with him for an opportunity for the gospel. And he's back there preaching the gospel of Christ in Troas. So let's just work through this story together. We read in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, as he prolonged his speech until midnight. So we don't know when the meeting started, but it was um, the first day of the week. It was a Sunday. Maybe it started in the evening. Even if it started at 5 o'clock, he's preaching from 4 or 5 o'clock, maybe six, maybe 7 o'clock. But he's been going for like like five hours at this point. Um, preaching deep on into midnight. Um, I do think it's significant here, just the mention of the first day of the week. That means it's Sunday. This has been the pattern of the early church down through the centuries to meet on Sunday. And the significance of this is that it would have been most convenient for Christians to have met on Saturday with the Sabbath. I mean, after all, it's the Ten Commandments, right? The seventh day you shall cease from your labor and you know rest on the Sabbath. That's the day the Jews really gathered together. But Christians made a, made a point to break from the Jewish people to worship on Sunday. Probably, as most people think, with the resurrection of Christ changing everything, that's what changed between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and Christians began on their, their Sunday morning meetings. But that's not to say that we're commanded to meet on Sundays. I know churches in Nepal gather on Saturdays. It is too. All churches in Nepal gather on Saturdays to worship. And churches in Muslim lands, right? I mean, on Fridays, because Friday is like the Muslim holy day. It's just easier that way. When the whole society is geared up for a Friday, then they can do that as well. Um, but note, here it is. They met on, on Sunday evening, not in the morning. So if you're commanded, if you're going to take this, say, oh, we must meet on Sunday, because according to this command, well, you must meet on Sunday evening then is when you have to meet. And so anyway, that, that, that's, that's neither here nor there. But it is the first day of the week. It is when they were gathered together to break bread It's probably a mention of the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate soon at the end of my message, if ever I stop preaching here. But we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, this idea of breaking bread may include the idea of eating a meal together. But in the early church, they'd often gather and and eat meals together. And also, often part of that would be the the Lord's Supper, remembering and celebrating the Lord and, and all that He's done for us and coming and dying upon the cross for our sins. And then comes the tragedy of Eutychus. And how ironic this morning, the meaning of you know what Eutychus means? Anyone know what Eutychus means? Lucky. <laughs> Fortunate. Goodwill. It's going to go well with him. Here's Lucky sitting on his, uh, sitting on his porch, uh, sitting on his window, and verse 8 tells us that there are many lamps in the upper room where, where we were gathered. And I can only surmise from this that Luke's talking about because of the atmosphere that these lamps promoted. Not, not only just taking the oxygen out of the room, but also the, the many lamps would have had this hypnotic effect perhaps with the, the flickering light. He's trying to give Eutychus some, uh, some slack here. And so it may have added to his drowsiness. I mean, can you imagine, right? It's one thing to, there's one thing here Sunday morning to stay awake and we've got all this light and we're looking good. But, you know, at evening time, you know, lights dimmed candles around the place, flickering, you're a young boy. Um, I, feel, I feel compassion for Eutychus. I, I, I really do. I, I remember being a kid in church, and I've told this story before long ago. I remember when I was a, a kid in church, Austin, I was probably your age, and the pastor was so boring at the church that I 
what I did, you guys remember this story, guys? I was at church, and so I just took a hymnal, and I was like, oh, this guy's droning on, 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 on forever. And so I took a, and I went page one, page two, page three, page four, like, like something to, to keep me alive, uh, to keep me awake, keep me alive probably too, so I didn't fall out the window, right? So, and I did this through, you know, so if you do this guy, I mean, you can do this as kind of a help to uh, stay awake. Do it, do it quietly, like don't, you know, don't. Don't make a lot of noise, just do it quiet. But I remember doing that as a kid, and so I remember how, how hard it was. And I know what it's like to be in an auditorium, listening to a speaker and feeling sleepy. In fact, I have compassion on some of you right now when you're like, oh man, this is, this is, this is difficult. In fact, Yvonne and I have a word for this. When we're ever sitting together, like say at a church service together, or where we're sitting in some lecture, whatever, and <clears throat> we just say, you're hurting, aren't you? <laughs> hurting is our word. You're like, you're like really hurt. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hurting. And in fact, I, I remember Yvonne in college when I met her. She was at UCLA, and um, we, we'd, we'd go to church. And I remember seeing some of your notes that even you had some pen, like writing notes, and it would trail off. And they're like, <laughs> like, because in college, she like slept four or five hours a night. And so she would often come to church really sleepy and, and trying to stay awake. She'd write notes to help stay awake, and just kind of, Trail it off. But we have many times we whispered to each other, boy, are you hurting? Because when you're, it's painful, right? When you're sleeping and you're trying to stay awake, it's really hard. And um, I know that some of you struggle with this more than others. Okay, I could point you out, but I'm not going to. Because, <laughs> because as you look up here, you guys don't really know. I mean, sometimes there's the obvious, that, that's, that's kind of obvious. That doesn't happen all, often. But, but one of the things, when, I, when I'm up front, I'm telling you, I see some particular people of you, okay? I see that. And I, I think it's constitutionally in some of you that you, you fall asleep. Um, if you want to volunteer who you are, that, that would be okay. But I know Gary Weeby, year one, yep, and there are, there are others, right? Just kind of just struggling, just struggling. And so, you know, I want to give advice, maybe some practical things you do. Maybe you can sit next to an elbow poker. That, that would be good. In fact, I heard last week, even if someone who says, yeah, I sit next to this person because they have a sharp elbow and really help me. Last week I heard that. And so that's, that's helpful. I know one of the things I do, like I, I bite my tongue sometimes to startle myself. I wish Eutychus probably needed some of this advice. Bite your tongue, Eutychus. I can give yourself a little pain or you pinch yourself, right? Kind of startles yourself. Really, you can do that. And it kind of helps. You perk up. Or I find it helpful really to stand up though, right? So like I know sometimes you, you get up, you, you can get up and you can go to the back and maybe just even a, a sip of water. If you're really struggling, even have you stand in back. Totally fine with me. If you're just standing back there because you said, Steve, like I'm falling asleep too much or I didn't have enough sleep last night or whatever, standing is helpful because it, it, it's rare that I see someone standing going because they'd be flat on the floor, all right? And they might be Eutychus hitting their head or something like that. So if that's you, you're sleepy, I just encourage you to fight it whatever way you can so that you can be a hearer of God's word. Now, it's incumbent also upon me as a preacher, all right? So it's not just... <clears throat> not just Eutychus, not just you, it's not your problem. Um, I, there's, there's a book about preaching that I don't have, but maybe I should have purchased it and kind of scanned through it this week, but I don't have it. And, and the preaching book is entitled Saving Eutychus. 
And the subtitle of the book is this, How to Preach God's Word and Keep People Awake. Because there's this need for preachers, right, to, to keep people awake and to stir them and to help keep them to action. I, I, I've not read the book, but I appreciate the title because I know the need to keep people on their edge, up to their seats and listening. That's why I've been trying to keep you awake these last 10 minutes intentionally, like just helping you. Because I know sometimes you put a laugh, you put a smile on your face, right? There's something engaging, illustrations, right? It all helps. And I just know that one preacher who I really respect said this, the cardinal sin of a preacher is to be a boring preacher. And I try not to be boring. I try to have passion, enthusiasm, try to have enough content to keep you engaged and interested. I try to I, I try to step aside and I try to give illustrations and, and, and tell of how you can apply. I try that as, as much as I, I can. But here's, I'm super encouraged by the Apostle Paul even droned on so long that he was a boring preacher. So I feel encouraged by that. Maybe Paul needed to read this book, Saving Eutychus. Well, anyway, what, what happened to him? Verse 9, it says that... Um, Verse 9, and a young man named Eutychus, lucky, was sitting at the window, sank into deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, do not be alarmed, for life is in him. So here's Eutychus on the ground, and Paul, like, down the stairs, like, could you imagine the commotion? All of a sudden, Eutychus falls out the window, it's like, oh! We just lost him. <laughs> Everybody like out the door. And Paul's going down there and they're all kind of looking around him. And, and Paul gets down his hands and knees, puts his arms around him and, and, and just covers him. And like Jesus would have said, it's okay. He's all right. There's life in him. Now, when you hear this story, it sounds like a couple other stories of the Old Testament. Remember who did a similar thing? Elijah and Elisha. They both did the same thing. First Kings 17. Now, we could read the whole story. If I wanted to preach till midnight, we read the whole story. But we're just going to read a few verses here. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And to the, the widow of Zarephath, his son, her son, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came in again, and he was revived. That was Elijah. Right, raising this child from the dead. And, and, and Elisha, the Shunammite son, the son said, oh, my head, my head, and he died of a headache. And then Elisha came by, and in 2 Kings chapter 4, said this, when Elisha went up, he lay on the child, he put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. And he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him, and the child sneezed seven times. The child opened his eyes. So Paul did exactly what Elijah and Elisha did. I, I, I suspect similar deal. Mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand, body to body, stretching himself out upon this child. And, and what's significant here, think about it. Who should have been stretching himself out upon the body to help the body revive? Dr. Luke should have been doing that. I mean, if it happened at Rock Valley Bible Church... You know what? I'm not going to try to help that child. Brian Mulder's helping that child, or Cassie Alcock, or Amy Lask, right? The physician's assistants, right? The medical field, they deal with this often, not me, but not so in the case of Paul. He raised the child from the dead. I think Luke said, can't do anything about that. 
Paul said, I can. I can. And he saved Eutychus from the dead. So this saving Eutychus isn't about how to raise dead children from the dead, right? It's about not getting them dead in the first place. But that's the power of Christ. And then after he's raised from the dead, we read in verse 20, so it's after midnight by now, been going evening, been preaching four, five, six, eight hours, whatever. It gets to be midnight, and that's about the time when uh, when Eutychus fell out the window, or maybe it was, it was after that because Paul was prolonging his speech until midnight, somewhere around there. And then Paul raised him from the dead, and then Paul got up, and he it says, and he had broken bread and eaten. Now, the whole fact that they eaten there is probably just they broke bread and they ate. They ate their meal together afterwards. So this is like a late-night snack, if you will, right? Ice cream after midnight, kids would love that. And he conversed with them a long time until daybreak. So here was midnight, and he's, <clears throat> he's talking to them until the sun comes up, which in those regions about 6 o'clock in the morning because they're near the equator. He's talking another six hours at night. And then after that, he departed, verse 11, and then they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. They're super comforted by the fact that Eutychus then was raised from the dead now, all this demonstrates, really, Paul's heart for the Word in his teaching ministry. They could go on and on and on and on and on. I've intentionally preached long this morning just to kind of test you a little bit today and just say, hmm, he's going really long. I know. Well, I, I told the children's church workers, I said, you know what, I'm going to go long today intentionally just so you can feel maybe a little bit of Eutychus and just say am I bored with that because some of that is do you desire the word is a is a long sermon burden to you like oh man I gotta get home because whatever I gotta get home bears play tonight so that's good so you don't have to get home before noon so that's okay but I mean you think about that how can you drone on and on and on how can you speak for five hours six hours unless you know your topic really well like it really struck me about sports fans right these sports talkers you know, people say, well, I can't really talk that. Well, how would I talk about that? But you talk to a sports fan, and they can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about all that you know, has happened in football and this guy's injury and this guy's trade and that bad decision and that play and da 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 And then you just kind of go on and on and on. Why? Because that's what their mind is saturated with. And I think so likewise, the Apostle Paul had his mind saturated in God's Word, saturated with the Gospel, and that's what he continued to take and continue to pursue as he, he did that all night long. And the people love to hear the Word of God. Do you love to hear the Word of God? Are you on the back end of the teaching? <clears throat> As Paul demonstrated this in ministry, also people who love the Word. And I know you do. I'm thankful for that. But it's the Word of God that grows people. And it's so important to hear that, to hear the Word of God. Now, I'm preaching long, but I'm not going until midnight. So you can, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of we're wrapping it up. Because Paul here celebrated the Lord's Supper, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in just a little bit. I'm just thinking about it. As Paul led the Lord's Supper, what, what do you think he was talking about when he led the Lord's Supper? I suspect he perhaps led through the themes of Romans just because that was so much on his mind. You know, Steffi's at, at Boyce College, and I've just kind of determined in my heart <clears throat> that I'm going to podcast the chapel messages down there. So that if she hears chapel messages, I can hear chapel messages. And so we got to have like this father-daughter link, if you will, that she's in Louisville and I'm up here. And so we've talked about several of them. And uh, recently, about a week ago or so, Al Mohler was there and uh, he was speaking about uh, abortion. And you say, why was he talking about abortion? Well, Roe v. Wade, yes, but because he's writing a book about abortion. And so that's like what's on his mind right now. 
And so he started with Psalm 139, I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. You knew me in my mother's womb when I was conceived. And just talked a lot about that. And he's bringing in history of abortion and the ancient world and the modern world and just everything pre-Roe v. Wade. It's just fascinating what he's talking about. But he could talk about it so well because that's what he's writing about. And I think similarly here, right, when, when Paul is, is going to speak about the Lord's Supper, I, I think he just, he's going to talk about what he just wrote. And he just wrote this treatise of Romans. And so the themes of Romans were probably on his mind about reflecting upon the work of Christ. And so I just want to really think about doing that before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, do this remember to me. We need to remember the cross. We need to remember everything that Jesus did for us the cross of Christ. And, and if you think about Romans, Romans, Romans begins <clears throat> after the introduction to speak how we are under the wrath of God. Apart from Jesus, we're under the wrath of God. None of us can save ourselves by anything that we've done. None of us. In fact, he even says, right, all of us have turned aside. There's no one who seeks for God. You, you put people out there, you Greeks in Troas, before the gospel came to you, you were pursuing your gospel, your idols. You were pursuing your vain things, your sinful things. And you're apart from God. And you fell short of the glory of God. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, he sent his son. When we were helpless, when we were sinners, when we were haters of God, when he sent his son to die for us. And Jesus Christ came to be the propitiation in his blood. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24. <clears throat> the propitiation means that the God's wrath that was upon us for being sinners has been turned away at the cross of Christ. And that it's, that it's no longer there. And, and the promise of the gospel is that, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We simply need to call upon the name of the Lord. Everyone who does that will be saved from their sin. But how will they call unless someone comes and preaches? And just even to you at Troas, right? I came, I preached. So you heard the gospel. And you called upon the Lord. And you're saved from your sin. And we just never ought to move away from the gospel. The, the gospel of Christ. In Romans 8.32. Well, he wouldn't have, didn't know those verses, of course. But he said, He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Just everything that we have is with Christ, and God's going to give us everything, the, the great blessings that we have in the gospel. And so as we eat the bread and drink the cup, really it's a proclamation that says, yes, I'm, I'm all in on this gospel. I believe it. I trust it. Not, not, that, not that the bread's going to save you at all, but the bread and the cup are a reminder, as Jesus said, right? We need to remember, we need to remember all that Christ has done for us at the cross of Christ. It should be a time of rejoicing. Like I, I picture this, this time of breaking bread with them. Right? They're just there at the meal, and they're right there, and <clears throat> Paul's leading them in gospel thoughts, and they're loving it, and then they're breaking bread, and then they're eating their meal together. How, how appropriate is it for us, even when we eat meals together the first Sunday of the month, to have our, our potlucks together? But there was Paul, there was them, thinking about the gospel. I just want you to think about the gospel just through Romans, and how that's just, it's mind-blowing, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unfathomable his ways... Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he may be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's how Paul concludes just the greatness of the gospel. It's just like mind-blowing. Mind and we can be part of that. And we can celebrate that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. So let's pray.
If your head is bowed, just really encourage you to just think about your life and think about your faith. If you're a believer in Jesus, then celebrate the supper. You take the bread and drink the cup. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you um, don't profess His name, you're here visiting. It's great to have you. <clears throat> but if Christ is not yours, then don't don't celebrate the supper. Just let the cup and bread pass. But for us who are saved, like this is the message of the power of God. <clears throat> and in this we can rejoice. And we do rejoice. And I, I pray that as we celebrate the supper, may it indeed be a celebration for we reflect once more upon the, um, the glories of the gospel of Christ. That He saved us. Not because of works we've done. Not in order for us to, to be righteous. Right? But He saved us, forgiven us. Made us right before, before the Lord, and in that rejoice, and that's what we rejoice with uh, the Lord's Supper. So let it let us eat, and drink joyfully as unto the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.